Oh my. This is Hocus Pocus by Focus. The first song that was really a huge hit on Sire Records. The first song to bring them a ton of money. And it's a song that if you grew up in the New York City area, you heard a million times because WPLJ used to use it. Sort of a classic rock station. Nah, I don't know what. The, a rock station? A poppy rock station when I was growing up. They used to use this a lot as sort of background music for for stuff. Uh, so you heard it a lot if you were a kid growing up in New York City. Uh, today we're interviewing Seymour Stein, who ran Sire Records for a number of years. And quite interestingly, uh, a few days after we completed this interview, he was fired. So we don't get to talk about maybe the most interesting thing that would have been a perfect end to the interview, his being fired. Uh, he's written this book. It's all about his life. Wow. This part of the song is just completely insane, by the way. Of course, the yodeling part. Uh, he's written this book. It's all about his life in music. He's an old guy. Uh, and uh, he changed the date of the interview multiple times. And then the, on finally, when the day came to actually do the interview, I called him and he claimed to have no knowledge that there was an interview taking place. He'd asked for the, uh, and we worked it out, we talked later that day, but this is always a bad sign. The more delays and problems there are, usually, ever, always, the worse the interview it is. Uh, he also wanted the questions in advance, which I don't do, uh, but that's also a bad sign. You know, he's just an old guy, I, I understand, but uh, he, he didn't seem to enjoy being interviewed, or uh, he seemed in a hurry, and I did the best I could do. Uh, I really did enjoy the book. It's called Seymour, uh, Siren Song by Seymour Stein and Gareth Murphy. And uh, if you're into, you know, all these crazy people who were involved in the record business and still are, this is a great book for you. And just his up and down, his ups and downs, and he, you know, living through the 70s and 80s and drugs and sex and, uh, and great music, it's all detailed in this book. So yeah, so I, I tell you that just so you, I tell you about the process of getting the interview together because I think you can hear it when you listen. So I want you to sort of have that background of, of what kind of a guy I'm dealing with and uh, and, and what the interview is about. And, and I'm sorry we didn't get to talk about his being fired after so many years at Warner Brothers uh, who bought Sire long, long ago. Uh, you can always email me, michaels at wfmu.org. I'm curious to have your feedback and uh, we don't have commercials, we don't have any thing like that so I do ask you uh, some people ask me what we can do you can just tell a friend tell a friend you love this podcast uh, send a link to a friend make them listen put a gun to their head uh, you can also review me on review the podcast on iTunes that's apparently very helpful leave a short review uh, lots of good stuff coming up check wfmu.org slash Michael for the list of upcoming guests email me say hi have a great summer here I am with Seymour Stein Seymour Stein, welcome to WFMU. Good morning. I love the book. One of the great things about it is it kind of weaves your life story, which you're very honest and open about, with these great characters who run run all through the story. Uh, and it's just one of those things I just ate it up. I, I thought it was fantastic. One of the things that the, the book makes really clear is why you're in this. Uh, it seems like you have always been pulled by the music. It wasn't the business or the money or the fame. It was the music. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, of course, I, I'm glad I'm I'm glad I've been successful. I wanted to be successful, and in in being successful, I've helped make uh, a lot of artists successful, which uh, 
you know, I I owe more to them than they owe to me. But uh, that, uh, whatever it is, you know, um, but I'm certainly not in it just for the money, ever. In the book, you you talk about how you're an A&R guy, you spot talent, you're not a producer, you're not a musician, you're not a guy who can run a recording studio. And I couldn't tell if what you were trying to say is that uh, that guys who do what you do don't quite get enough respect. No, I wasn't saying that at all. I'm just trying to say that uh, ears are enough if they're good. I, I Look, I wrote this book for young people. I mean... I hope everybody buys the book, but I wrote it mainly for young people. I think that my success came from starting very young. I started listening to the radio when I was five or six years old. I went to Billboard when I was 13 years old. I started working for Billboard when I was 15 years old and still in school, still in high school. I would commute from Brooklyn to their offices in New York every day. You've got to start young, what, whatever it is you want to do. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's that way. I'm, I'm no sportsman at all, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's the way it is with people who long to be baseball players or football players or, or, or whatever. It's the same in the music business. Start young. Mm. Uh, you grew up in Brooklyn. Your parents ran a deli in Coney Island. Uh, no, no, you- no. My, gra- my grandparents... Uh, my my parents did not run a deli. Um, I meant your grandparents. Forgive me. My maternal my maternal grandparents ran a, a a a grocery store in Coney Island. You used to sell ice cream on the beach. You'd make ten bucks a day, and you'd go buy forty fives. Where would you buy the forty fives? Do you still have them? Uh, just tell me about that whole. That- I have most. I guess I have most of them. Uh, I would I would buy them at at, at local record stores or. Uh, you, you, you know, there was there was one on King's Highway called Byhoff Brothers. It was actually a sporting shop, but in the back they had records, and uh, there were there were you know uh, other little record stores too. Um, you, you, you know, later on when I started going to New York, I, I would buy them in other stores as well. Tell me about the first live uh, music that you saw. Oh, God. I mean, the first live music of great substance that I saw were the Alan Freed shows in Brooklyn at the Brooklyn Fox or the Brooklyn Paramount. And wow, they were spectacular. I, I would stay for all three performances. That, you know, I, 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 uh, I just couldn't leave. You know, I mean, there was a live performance and then a movie, uh, a live performance and a movie and then a live performance. I would stay throughout, and, you know, there, there was a great doo-wop artist, rhythm and blues artist, uh, um, Frankie Lyman and the, and the Teenagers, uh, the Flamingos, uh, Chuck Berry, Laverne Baker, um, you know, and many, many, many others. It was, uh, it was a thrill for me to be there. Yeah, those things sound like paradise really just uh, heaven heaven yes uh you talk about this moment where you see ricky nelson singing i'm walking on television and it kind of awakens your sexuality a little bit and you're very open a little with your, bit yeah uh, which i totally see i mean god he was gorgeous right so uh, it's one thing you're very open about in this book and again you yeah, but, go ahead yeah, but I, I like women too but i i 
you know, I've, I'm, I, I was married. I had two daughters. Uh, I had quite a few girlfriends. But no, I, I do. I, you know, I, I basically, you know, I, I'm gay. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned Billboard, where you were an intern. That was kind of the first door that opened for you, where you met a lot of, again, very interesting characters that run all through the book. One of them is Sid Nathan, who he helped you shorten your name. He, he took you to Cincinnati and let you kind of uh, live with his family and work for him. I mean, what a crazy character that guy is. I mean, I just I wish I could have met Sid Sid Nathan. I wish everybody could have met him. I mean, it was a King was a great record company like no other company ever. Uh, They specialized in rhythm and blues and in country and Western music, but they also brought doo-wop in very, very early. They were involved in jazz. They, They were the first to have Nina Simone on their label, and I think her best recording ever, I Loves You, Porgy. So it was a great, great record company. I got to work with James Brown, with Hank Ballard, with Freddie King, you, you know, and uh, it was a, a great, great experience. I got to learn how to run a record company, and, um, you know, he, he's my greatest mentor. My book is dedicated to him, you, you, you know, and uh, I just love the man. Uh, well, is there some principle that he taught you about the record business that you still use today? I do a lot of principles, you know, I mean, and, and, uh, you, you, you know, but I think the most important one, which I, I, I must say, I kind of, you know, he just kind of confirmed it for me because I always thought it as a kid, the most important thing, thing is a song. And, um, you, 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 you know, I mean, it, people are attracted to songs whether it was a hundred years ago uh, and there was a music business then and it was, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, all about phonographs. It was, I'm talking about before the phonograph when it was sheet music and pianos. It was all about songs and uh, I think it's still about songs. Tell me about, uh, you worked for Redbird, which was Lieber and Stoller's label, and this guy named George Goldner ran it. He's another, I mean, he was a ladies' man, he was a gambler, another totally uh, bigger-than-life personality. Larger than life, and um, incredible ears, um, you know, unfortunately uh, somewhat self-destructive, but I learned an awful lot from him as well. Uh, you also, through him, met Morris Levy. Tell me about your run-ins with, with Morris. Well, I had met Morris Levy at, 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 at Billboard, actually. He came up to Billboard. But I didn't have a run-in with him, but um, it's in the book. You, you, you know, um, George was a, a, a terrible gambler, and he, I think, owed some people money. And um, I'm walking down the street, you know, going to lunch, and these two guys come over to me, and they say, uh, Morris Levy wants to see you. We're taking you to his office. I said, there must be some mistake. He said, Wait, are you Seymour Stein? I said, yes. So they, you know, not grabbed me. I mean, I'd, I wasn't going to fight with them. They took me to his office, and there was this guy that said, you know, he he brought this guy out, and, he, and this guy said to me, not wasn't Morris. He said, you're Seymour Stein? I said, yes. He said, do you know what day it is? So I said, well, yeah. I said, you know, I was so shaken. I said, well, two days ago, 
was my birthday, so it must be April 20th, because my birthday is April 18th. He said, well, what, what was it five days ago? I said, uh, April 15th. He says, that's right, income tax day. He said, you were supposed to give me $10,000. I said, what? I said, look, I'm a kid. I don't have $10,000, and why would I give it to you? <laughs> he said, well, George Goldner said you would lend me $10,000. I said, well, that's... That, I don't know where. Are, are you sure about that? I mean, I wasn't laughing. I was, I, I, I was like frightened. And then Morris Levy interferes and inter. He says, "Look, there's something wrong with this story." He said, "He said, I don't think Seymour knows anything about this." And he called George Goldner up, and he had George Goldner come over, and and I went back, you know, to my office, and that was the, the last I heard of it. But. Um, you know, and uh, you know, and then Morris tried to be very, very nice to me over the years uh, as a result of that. So something good came out of it. Yeah, a great story, fantastic. One of the things around this time is your first trip to Europe, and you make a great. Uh, there's a bunch of great stories. Uh, you make a great point of how you realized early how going to Europe and meeting people and finding records that had already come out in Europe and then bringing them to America that became very central to to what to your plan to how you were going to break into yes. America. Well, through Sid Nathan, I got to know the head of EMI, which was not only the biggest record company in in, in England, you know, over 50% of the market, it was the biggest record company in the world. They owned capital, among other labels. And uh, Eldry Wood said to me, he said, you know, Sid speaks very highly of you. I was about 17 at the time, 18. He said, when you go in the music business and when you come to England, I want to you to I want to be the first person you see. So uh, sure enough, I did. And, you know, the the Beatles had been turned down not once but twice by Capitol Records, if you can believe that. And that's why those their records came out on little labels like VJ and Swan. So I, I said, look, you know, you must have a lot of great music that, uh, that Capitol isn't going to, you know, release. And he put it all out on the table for me. And that's how I picked up the Climax Blues Band, Renaissance, uh, Barkley, James Harvest, and Kevin Ayers, and many, many other great artists that I was able to, to license for little or no money. And uh, it helped, you know, pay the, pay the bills at Sire until we could get ourselves off the ground. But more importantly, far more importantly, all the EMI companies started sending me music, and I got one from Holland by a guy named Jan Ackerman, and uh, I loved it so much, I called him up, and I said, look, uh, we don't pay big advances or any, he said, but I'd like this record. He said, oh, this record you can have for nothing. He said he just left the label to go back to his old band. I got on a plane instinctively, flew over, saw the band, signed them, the band was called Focus. Hocus Pocus was our first million-selling al- single. The album sold almost a million uh, moving waves, and Sire was on the map as a result of that. 
Yeah. Uh, you started Sire uh, with Richard Goddard. You were signing bands, and he was producing some acts and stuff. And music started changing. I think Focus is 1973. And then it's amazing yeah. how how quickly things change. Uh, you know, the Ramones is only a few years later. Later, yeah. Yeah. But but the, it's so different. Tell me about the first time you sort you went and down and saw the Ramones and did your mind get blown? Yes, it did. It certainly did. I had heard about the Ramones from from the great Danny Fields, and um, I had wanted to go see them. But I was in England back and forth all the time when they were playing. I got home just before one of their gigs, but I was I I was so ill I couldn't go. I sent my wife with Danny to see them. She came back raving. The next day, I put them in a rehearsal studio uh, for an hour. They played about, you know, 15, 18 songs in maybe 22 minutes. That's, you know, they rattled them off. Uh, I spent the rest of the time talking to them, making a deal. They were in the studio two days later, and uh, it was one of the greatest thrills of my life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's one of my favorite records, certainly one of my favorite bands. I mean, it, it people hate change, you know, everybody hates change. People want to just stick with what's already happening, what's working already. And the, there was no better symbol of that than the Ramones, you know, people just didn't want to play those records because they were scared of them. I mean, what? how, how did you try to break through all that? Well, we tr- we tried. I mean, the Ramones tried harder than anyone. They played their hearts and souls out, and they were amazing. They did much better internationally uh, than they did in, the, in 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 England. They were playing big venues, and then they had to come back and play small venues like CBGBs or small clubs in Boston and Philadelphia, which was heartbreaking for me. They also sold a lot of records in South America, in Argentina, and Brazil. Um, and, um, you know, and the, and the, the aura of the, of the Ramones just grows stronger year by year. Yeah. It's amazing that now this band that everybody felt so threatened is used to sell cars and, uh, you know, it's a, it's very mainstream. Yes. They must absolutely. Feel, yeah. They use it to sell, um, you know, uh, gym equipment now too. There's this uh, Peloton company that uses it too. You know, they use Blitzkrieg pop, so, um, you know, mm. God bless them. Yeah, sure. Uh, I want to remind everybody that Seymour Stein is our guest, and Siren Song, My Life in Music is the name of the book, and like I said, I love, love, love the book. Uh, so the Ramones open this door, and I think of, of all those bands, uh, you make it really clear in the book that the Talking Heads uh, were really something special to you. Well, the, the, all my bands are special to me. But the the the, remote, the the Talking Heads story is quite unique. I, um, you know, my my uh, wife was managing the Ramones with Danny Fields at the time, so they knew everything I was doing. Again, I come home from a trip from England. Thank God I wasn't sick this time, and I'm in the house 15 minutes, and of course Johnny calls me up and he says, "You know, we got some new songs. You know, we want you to hear them. You know." And so uh, I I said, well, great, look. And I remember it was a Sunday, clearly it was a Sunday. So I said, look, give me Monday in the office and come in any time you want on Tuesday and I'll hear them. He said, no, he said, we know you're not doing anything on Wednesday night. So we booked ourselves into CBGB's. 
So I said, great, great. So I called up just to check what the opening act was, and it was the shirts. Good band, but I had seen them several times, and I didn't want to sign them. And they were also managed by Hilly Crystal, a wonderful man, the owner of CBGB's. And I didn't want to insult him or anything. So I was waiting outside with Lenny Kay and, um, you know, Lenny Kay from the Patti Smith Band. And uh, all of a sudden I hear, when my love stands next to your love. I and it was like nothing I ever heard. And actually the music, I swear, like, was drawing me into into CBGBs from the street. I couldn't believe it. It was like, it was it was like I, I was a snake charmer. So, I and when I saw it, it was just a three piece at that time. I was in awe, in awe of you know Chris and Tina and David. They were fabulous. You know, I wanted to if 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 I could take out a pad and sign them immediately, I would have. And then I, I tried to help Tina down. They didn't have a crew, you know. Uh, and and then David comes over and says, look, you're Seymour Stein. We know who you are. Why don't you come over to our loft tomorrow and talk to us? Not here. And uh, so I came over and I offered them a deal, which was, you know, a bigger deal than I think I had ever offered before because I, I was so in love with the band. They... That it was in November, as like I said, mid-November. They signed almost a year later, on the 1st of November, on the following year. I lost so much sleep thinking that there were seven majors then with loads of money. Uh, and I said, somebody's going to steal this band from me and all of this and all of that. And, um, you know, so, but it never happened. And they signed with me. And it was one of the greatest joys of my life then and still now. Uh, and in, there's nothing like the Talking Heads. They're totally unique. Just just like the Ramones are totally unique. So um, just incredible. Yeah, one of the things that's sort of a testament to your abilities is that you really stuck with the Talking Heads. It, you know, they made great records all the way through, but they didn't have huge commercial success till I guess their fourth album or so. And to stick with them is is you know that's not every. Oh, I would I would have stuck with them forever, and and not only that, but uh, of of course Chris and Tina had success on, on their own ahead of that. So that that kind of helped put the made the ball you know rolling a, a little bit uh, better too so yeah. but um now the talking heads genius one of the interesting things about the book is your relationship with warner brothers or whoever is distributing you because there's always this weird push and pull where you've signed some band that you're going crazy over and they say we've got too many bands this month or this week or there's too many everything you know and it's you trying to get guys like mo austin to 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 push your bands a little bit. And Mo Austin, again, comes off as a really unusual character in this book. Well, I don't, I don't mean, Mo Austin is an unusual character. He wouldn't have been around so long. Mo Austin is probably the smartest man that, you know, businessman that I, that I ever met in, in the music business. And, and that's what he is, you know, and, and, uh, you know, he's still around, God bless him. But the thing is that, you, 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 you know, he, he didn't make it easy for me. And, 
he didn't make it easy for me at all. But uh, look, you know, the truth is, the success of Sire Records has been so great. You know, be, beyond what I ever could have wished for. You know, so many bands, so much music. You know, and uh, so much time on my part that was well spent. I have so many great memories. I'm still here. I'm still working. Uh, I, I mean, I don't. I'd rather not. You know, discuss any of that. Sure. Uh, one of the great things the book tells is the kind of the mechanics of 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 how you did it, how how hard you worked, how much you traveled, and how you kind of really saw the the idea that the early bird gets the worm, that you would try to be there first and offer a fair deal and show your enthusiasm. And because of this, you were just flying around the world all the time. Well, with an indie, the early the early bird gets the worm it has to be the case or else, you know, as it, it was worse back in those days when there were more majors. You know, I think... It, You've you've got to be there early. You've got to be there fast, and uh, you've you've also got to be able. You know, a lot of people take too long to make up their mind. I mean, I uh, I very rarely, you know, gave. You know, I, my thought was usually instantly. You know, I mean, um, the the only the the only band I think that I, you know, had not doubts about. But it went back in my mind, back and forth, back and forth. But it was all in one evening were, were the replacements because they were so damn good, but they were so crazy. <laughs> and I said, oh, my God, what, am I, what will I be getting myself into? I'll probably get a heart attack. <laughs> but um, I, I make up my mind instantly, you know, and uh, I, I very seldom... You know, have to see something twice. I'm sure, or three times. I'm sure there there, there might have been cases like that, but uh, I swear I can't recall it right now. That's very interesting. I mean, you mentioned the replacements. Let's talk about that for a second because they were they had such a reputation as these wild guys. But did you have expectation that you'd be able to to turn bring them up to a new another level? I didn't think I could bring them up to another level because uh, you know. It's all about them, all about their music. I thought if they saw that, how much I believed in them and how hard I would work on my end for them, that uh, they would, uh, you know, uh, you know, respond. And they did. And Mm. they did for quite a while. And we had a great run. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned all this work that you did being there first and stuff. I mean, all of this did wreak havoc with your life a little bit in the book you're again you you you're very honest in the book about your lifestyle it just gets crazy at a certain point well yes yes it was quite crazy but um you know um i, I don't know wh- what you're driving at yeah i i had a pretty crazy lifestyle yes but you're still around you made it uh you thank made god it. yes yeah. Thank God you made it through. So were there records that you put out that you thought were going to sell a million and didn't, or vice versa, records that uh, you didn't think would sell that, you know, exceeded expectations? I never put out a record that I thought wouldn't be successful. Why would I do that? (laughs) Um, You know, um, you know, look, I, 
my greatest disappointment were the Ramones that they didn't, you know, reach, you know, greatest greater heights and greater strength while they were alive. But they're so big now, it doesn't matter. Um, with, with Madonna, people ask me, you know, the foolish question, um, did you know that she was going to be the biggest star, you know, blah, 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 the biggest female rock star ever? Of course not. I mean, look, I heard one song, and I liked it so much, I, I, I signed her on the one song. I mean, I believed in her totally, you know, but I had, you know, I, I had no dreams or visions. You know, as, as the relationship grew, I, I mean, my respect for her and my admiration and, and my belief in her grew. But, um, but no, I mean, that, that pe- people ask foolish questions like that. But clearly you saw something in her that you believed in and that paid off. I mean, you're, you, one of the things that's incredible is that you're, you know, doing A&R is trying to find that needle in the haystack and you're, you're really good at finding those needles. I mean, Madonna and Depeche Mode and the Smiths and the Cure and Lou Reed and Seal and the Flaming Groovies. Well, and no, the, and excuse the me, excuse me. Please, please. Lou Reed was a superstar before yes. I signed him. Right, Don't, but, you know, so was, so was, listen, I made records with Lou Reed, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Brian Wilson, and they were all big stars before. And, and just recently I started working. It's a dream, dream come true with Cindy Lauper, who I've idolized for years. And, um, you, you know, um, but, um, you, you know, please, Lou Reed came to me because we knew each other and for whatever reason was that he was unhappy, you know, he wanted to, you know, uh, uh, to go with a new record company and he came to me and we made, I think, four or five albums together and, uh, it, it was, it was really, uh, he's a tough guy, uh, but I enjoyed every minute of it. Yeah, I think it's important, though, that part of your story is that these people wanted to work with you, that they trusted you, that they trusted your ears and, and your music, uh, you know, your musicality. I think that's really important. You say in the book that uh, record people are hardworking but dysfunctional. Why, why is that such a common trait for record business people? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, uh, do you still get that childhood feeling when you listen to music? It seems like you do. Well, I wouldn't call it quite childhood anymore, but uh, yes, I get very excited. You know, uh, the book is called Siren Song: My Life in Music. How's the reaction been? It seems like you've been doing a lot of interviews. A lot. I've seen a lot of press on the book. People are really interested in it. How, did, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of personal stories. Did Did anybody get upset about what you wrote about them, or vice versa? I haven't heard anything back from anybody, you know, but, um, uh, you, you, you know, everything in there is true. I, I don't know where it is on the charts now, if it's on the charts, but it did hit the chart the, the first week out on the Bonds and Noble chart, which is a very well-respected uh, sales chart. It hit number 14, and, and their, their chart goes only to 20. And that, that I was amazed 
my God, I I would assume maybe, you, you know, that was a rush to buy it when it first came out. Maybe the sales have slowed down and they're going to come back again, I hope. You know, that's why I'm doing these interviews and uh, all, all that stuff. But I was amazed that it came on at number 14 on the Barnes & Noble chart. Uh, well, I, I will point out that the book is full of great stories about great characters and great bands and Thank people you. You, you people you cross paths with uh, in the music business. It really and and I think it would it, it would appeal to folks who are know a lot about this, but also to folks who don't know anything about the music business or who these characters are, because you really do paint these pictures that are uh, pretty broad. And so I, you don't you don't need to go in already knowing, uh, you know, who Morris Levy is. You will enjoy enjoy the book very much. Let's play a Talking Heads song because uh, you've got me in the mood for the Talking Heads. And uh, Seymour Stein, uh, I wish you great luck with the book. It's such a fascinating story, and there's so much. We've really just it's the top tip of the iceberg here. So, folks, read the book if you want the rest of the info. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.